Isaiah 43 and 44 to, um, man, we're actually coming through a whole section of the book Isaiah, which is so amazing. But these are really some awesome chapters. And I was thinking about how, you know, we as Christians, we have faith founded on fact. And so there's enough evidence for us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And once we do that from the heart, then God comes in and then he kind of proves himself to us, you know. And so one of the signs, though, we know that we have as far as whether or not uh, this is true. Uh, God, show me a sign that this is really uh, the truth, that Christianity is supernatural, that, you know, this type of stuff. Uh, One of the signs is just the existence of Israel. Uh, They have been through so much. Uh, I, I read this quote today. Uh, in which uh, one of the guys was standing on this promise, and we're going to read it today in Isaiah, where God says, I'm going to be with you. And he tells that to Israel. The Lord said that, and indeed he has been, through waters, through fires, through holocausts, through tragedies. Um, One king had a debate in his court, and what he did is he wanted to know if the Bible was really true, and so he took the case of the atheist and the believer. And so the atheist was represented by Voltaire. Some of you have know are familiar with him. Others, uh, The other side was from a Christian Moravian missionary named Count von Zindensorf. And the count stood before the king and he said, I can prove the validity of the Bible and Christianity with just two words. Two words. And his two words were the Jews. Because they have been through so much and God has raised them up as a sign for the world to see. You know, how they were scattered throughout the world, you know, and any other nation, and we see it throughout history, they would have lost their identity. But Israel maintained their cohesiveness and then in 1948, in our generation, they came back to the land. And that is a sign, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, throughout the scriptures, that is a sign for us to see that truly the Bible is true, that Christianity is true, and that this is something that is supernatural. So we're going to see that today as God continues to minister to his people. Notice what you read in verse 1, Isaiah 43. It says, but, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you. Now, just in case you're interested, the word formed is found eight times in these two chapters. Now, I will say this because I was reading it over and over and over again. That When you're trying to figure out like what's God saying, you're going to look for words that are repeated. And so if a word is repeated over and over again, you're going to kind of want to put your antennas up and say there's something here that God is trying to tell me. So God formed Israel. Uh, God made Israel. Now, there's going to be a contrast as we go through these chapters on how men formed idols. Men made idols, but God made us. And there's a contrast in that. You know, we got to be careful that we don't worship things that are of men or the things that men made, especially these idols, these statues, all that kind of stuff. It's ridiculous that anyone would bow down to put any food in front of an idol or something like that. But we see it still happening all over the world. They're worshiping idols, things that men made. When in all reality, we should be worshiping the God who made us. And so Israel was formed. They were birthed. They were loved by God. And that's the one that they should worship. And so the Lord here is reminding them. Verse 1, that says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, you formed you, O Israel. And here it is, fear not. Fear not. Now, this is another one of those little phrases that's repeated uh, Uh, Six times in the book of Isaiah, three times tonight, God is going to tell them, and I believe God is going to tell us, you have nothing to be afraid of. Fear not, for I have, God gives the reason, the command, and then the promise, for I have redeemed you, I've ransomed you, I've called you by your name. I am calling you by your name. You are mine, God says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Now, again, it's important for us to remember the background to when Isaiah is writing. So he's writing around 700 B.C. And this is uh, before uh, Babylon is even a world power. 
uh, he's writing to the Jews, knowing what's going to happen to them, that they're going to get disciplined, but not devastated. God will give them a fair and firm spanking, but he will not forsake them. And so for us, that's the way life is. You know, we're going to go through difficult times. We live in a broken world, broken bodies. We fight, we fight, we fight fallen angels. And so we're going to go through hard times. You guys know that, right? And when we do, when those troubled waters, the fires, when we go through those difficulties, sometimes it's because we've done something wrong and God is disciplining us. Sometimes it's because we've done something right and the enemy's coming against us. The Lord will show you uh, why you're going through what you're going through. A lot of times you'll be able to have that clarification. But the main thing is this, you guys, because we will all face it one day. So in one way or another, we're going to face it. And God says, when you're there, don't be afraid. Because I have a plan, even in this great pain that you're experiencing. You know, and the Lord here, this is such a beautiful promise for us because God tells us not to fear because uh, he's redeemed us. And we're going to see this is a, a huge thing because um, the children of Israel have some theologians will say three exoduses. So one is when they're ransomed out of Egypt. The second is when they're ransomed out of Babylon because eventually God would send them into captivity into Babylon and discipline them but not destroy them. But they would come out of Babylon. And then the third is what we witnessed in our generation in 1948 when they were, they were regathered from the whole wide world. They were redeemed. They were bought back. They were brought back literally to the land. And so when they're there in the midst of Babylon, when you're there in the waters, in the fire, when the things are hard, those terrible trials that are so tough, God says to us, do not be afraid. Fear not because you're mine, because I chose you, because I have purposes, because there's a plan that God is, he has in all these things. You know, when you think of the children of Israel and the fire, who do you guys think of? I know you guys know that one, right? Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, or as VeggieTales says, Shadrach and Benny, right? And so um, they were there, and they think about going in the fire. Now, you read Daniel chapter 3, the, the, the word had gone out. You're supposed to, when you hear the music, you're supposed to bow down to the idols. But these guys, they would not bow down. And so they were brought before the king, and he said, hey, I'll give you one more chance to bow down to the idols. They said, no. And so, you know, Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, let's heat that fire up seven times harder than normal. And, uh, and they threw these guys in the fire. You guys remember that story, right? And, uh, and if, you don't, if you don't know it, I encourage you to read it. And then when they went into the fire, it was just so cool because, you know, they're walking in the fire. Not, their, not a hair is singed. No, no negative, nothing bad that the devil wanted to do to them. None of that did not touch them. The only thing that burned away were the cords, the, the binds that, 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 that bound them. In other words, they got stronger. They got set free. And not only that, the king said when he looked at them in the fire, hey, wait a minute, time out. I thought we only throw three in there. Why is it that I see a fourth individual in there and, and he looks like you know someone special like the son of man? And that's what will happen as we go through the fires with our eyes on the Lord. Don't freak out. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Because remember what I told you last week, when we're afraid, three things happen. Number one, we lose our power. Number two, we lose our peace. And then number three, we lose our pleasure. In other words, we lose our joy. We have, we have nothing to be afraid of. You know, we're going to go through trials. Our kids are going to go through trials financially, physically, you name it. Things are going to happen to our church, to our ministry. You name it. Things are going to happen. And God says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. When you go through this uh, uh, fire, and he was, he was even thinking of the waters. You know, and there's a lot of uh, examples that we can use of individuals in the waters. I was thinking about Paul the Apostle uh, when they had the big shipwreck. Paul actually had many shipwrecks. But he didn't drown. There was one time in the book of Acts where he was just floating on a piece of wood. And they ended up floating to the island of Malta. And God did a great work there. So, you know, 
going through it. Um, even the, the, the disciples, when they're in the, in the boat and the, the, the storm and they're sinking, they're, they're like freaking out, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? And the Lord just woke up and he just said, you know, peace, be still. He, he rebuked the enemy. And, uh, and, and the bottom line is for us just to know whatever we go through, Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is in the boat. This is a promise for us. Some of you guys are going through it right now. Right now. Others of you, you will be going through it one day. And so God wants us to make sure that we hold on to this promise. Look what he says in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Now, when you read Ezekiel 16, you'll talk about how when God first saw Israel, he loved them. And they had not done anything to you know, deserve the love, but God just chose them. And then that's how God sees you i i know sometimes we struggle with ourselves but if you could only see yourselves the way that god sees you you would understand that he he loves you he chose you you know the other people in the world that reject god the, here we have the example of egypt and kosh and, and seba that was modern modern day southern egypt all of sudan northern ethiopia what we find is others were given in exchange for them as a ransom or reward for releasing the Jewish captives. And you're going to see, as you study history there, when Medo-Persia was on their way uh, to do what God called them to do in um, Babylon, that God had to give these other countries in advance. And so God gave Medo-Persia, God gave King Cyrus the victory. And so all that to say, you are special. You are. Why? Because you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, nothing great about us, and sometimes we can compare ourselves to other people. Why don't we say, well, they're whatever, more talented or more good-looking or more rich or whatever. You may, may, even, may even more nice, but it doesn't matter because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so when God looks at you, he sees you as the apple of his eye. And so what we find right here is God says you don't have to to be afraid. Fear not. I'm, I'm with you. We're going to talk more about the fact that God is our Savior. But I, I just, these things have to sink in. Now, for us, maybe you've heard it a million times, but when you read this kind of stuff in, in, in the Old Testament, especially, Isaiah's sharing this, even while they're going, they're going to go through difficult times, it was just a great reminder. You know, and it's not just us. Um, I'll bet you almost anything, if I were to talk to anyone here who has kids, they would say that their greatest concern is for their kids and not themselves. I'll bet you almost anything. And now look what the Lord says next in verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, when I have created, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. And so Israel, think about it. I'll bet you Israel's worried. You know, one of the things that I've noticed as I've gone through the book of Isaiah, and uh, you would figure I would have learned this a long time ago, but it kind of like clicked. There were, there were, you know, when you look at the history of the Jews, when um, Assyria came against Jerusalem, God delivered them from it. It didn't happen. But, but it was different with Babylon. So God delivered them in it. And that's the way it is for us. You know, I mentioned to you last week, you know, you almost get in a car accident and you're like, you, you know, whatever. It was a close call and you didn't get in a car accident. You're like, wow, praise God, it all worked out. You know, or whatever your situation is, you know, it all worked out. Sometimes it all works out, you know, to where we think it's a good thing. God delivered it out of it. But sometimes it doesn't always work out. Sometimes it's a car accident. Sometimes it's cancer. Sometimes it's whatever it might be. And in those cases, God doesn't deliver, it, deliver us from it. He delivers us 
in it or through it. And those are the two things, the two great things we see with Israel. Number one was Assyria, and number two was Babylon. With Assyria, he would, they were delivered from it. With Babylon, they were delivered in it. And this is what we're seeing right here. God is saying, you're going to go to Babylon, and while you're there in Babylon, I'll bet you almost anything, they're wondering what's going to happen to our nation. Okay, imagine, you guys, it's crazy, but imagine someone conquered the United States of America, and they took all the people and they deported them all around the world. Okay? And then what they did was they then repopulated our nation with foreigners. And, you know, they were doing their own religion and doing their own thing. Imagine that. Well, you, would, you would figure that the, the United States of America, the American citizens, would lose their identity. You'd be worried, like, what's going to happen to our nation? But, but God is telling them, no, I'm going to bring them all back. All your kids, you're worried about your kids, you're worried about your country, you're worried about those things. God is telling Israel right here, I'm going to bring them all back. And they're going to come from the, the, the east, and they're going to come from the north, and they're going to come from the south. And it's interesting here how he says they're even going to come from the west. Now that did not happen in those days. It is an, a, a, an inkling, it is something that we see happened uh, during the days of uh, Babylon God, was, we're going to see it later, mentions King Cyrus, brings him back into the country. Um, but that this whole thing right here is describing what's going to happen in the last days. And that's what we see in 1948, how God brings the people, God brought the Jews back from afar. Notice what it says right there in verse 6, from the ends of the earth. And that's what God has done. Why? Because God said, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. And Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirty one, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so we're, we're Christians and we have uh, this faith in Christ and we know we're, we you know die, we're going to go to heaven and we get raptured. But we have this faith. It's not just a hunch. It's not like a speculation. It's not like a shot in the dark. It is a faith founded on fact. And God says one of the signs is just the regathering of the nation of Israel. And so, of course, we know God ultimately has uh, this heart for the whole world. Look at verse 8. It says, bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this or, or who among them has foretold these things and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. In other words, which of them can predict what will happen uh, tomorrow? Where are the witnesses of such predictions? Who can verify that they spoke the truth? And, and what God is doing now, you guys, is God is just, he's setting himself apart from anyone else or any other so-called God by saying, I have the capacity, God says, from you know eternity past, and when you read the scriptures, to predict the future. And of course we know God's 100% accurate. And so he said, what other God has done that? Can you point to any prophecies uh, you know, in the other faiths or religions or gods or prophets? And the answer is no, you can't. We're going to see here that one of the things that we find uh, for us as Christians, the reason we know that this is a fact, that this is true, is because of the prophetic aspect of the Bible, because of God's ability to tell the future before it happens. And we know even in the life of Jesus Christ alone, there were 300 prophecies regarding his first coming. There are even more regarding his second coming. And so God is just saying right now, um, and he's going to talk about this a lot as we enter into the last section of Isaiah, who else is able to do that? And of course, we know uh, there are no, no others. There's none like him. And so we read in verse 10, he says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. 
I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me or apart from me, there is no Savior. I have declared and saved. In other words, I I said I was going to save you, and I did it. I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. In other words, there was no other God to help me. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. And there's a lot here, you guys. There's a lot here. But you are God's witnesses in in many ways. Um, Part of it is because of the things that you share with other people, you know. Um, You're witnesses and that you share. But another part of it is just because you shine, you know, because of the fact that you are, are prevailing as a Christian and God sees the way you went through the difficulties that you've gone through and you're still standing. Just that oftentimes is is a witness. Israel, that's what what we're talking about here. Israel's very existence is a witness. And so the Lord here is saying, you know, you're my servant. I've chosen you to believe in me. And the thing about God that he says right here is there's no God before me, neither shall there be a, a God after me. And so, you know, Mormonism will tell you that there are many gods and uh, there's only one God. Right here, God says it very clearly. There's no God before me, no God after me. If some of you guys are familiar with the Mormon religion, but they'll tell you, they teach, and you can go to their secret you know, Mormon rituals and you can find out what's going on in their temples. And you know, they say that if you're a good Mormon, that eventually you can marry uh, someone and you have a celestial ha- uh, marriage and you'll be able to then have, you know, celestial sex, you have your own planet, you become a god of that planet. You know, and again, we love everybody, but, you know, for us, understanding the, what Mormonism teaches, I mean, that's heresy. There's only one God. There's no God before. There's no God after. Not only that, the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you that Jesus was a God. And they'll tell you that in John chapter 1 and verse 1. It's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And they insert that in there in the text, in the Bible, where it doesn't belong. Why? Because they believe that Jesus was like, kind of like a, a minor God or you know a sub-God. And so um, they'll say that. But what we find, I, God says it clearly, there's only one God, right? And for us, we know it's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, equal in essence and nature, but not in function and office. And so that's why it's important for us. These are very important verses. The other one that's really important right here, in verse 11, he says, I am, I, even I am the, the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. There is no other Savior. Now, the word Lord is in reference to the, 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 the very name of God, the Tetragrammatron. And so this is the covenant name, you know, Yahweh. This is God Almighty. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you that Jesus is a mighty God, but not almighty God. But here we see almighty God say, I'm the Savior, and there is no other Savior. Now, let me ask you guys, if I were to ask you guys the question, who's your Savior? You guys would say, Jesus, why do you say that so quickly? Because the New Testament is filled, inundated, flooded with clear, explicit scriptures that say Jesus is our Savior. Acts 13.23, it says, From this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a Savior, Jesus. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.10, Titus one. Verse 4, Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 3.6, 2 Peter 1.1, 2 Peter 1.11, 2 Peter 2.20, 2 Peter 3.18 is a great one. It says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if Yahweh God in the Old Testament is saying, I'm the, the, the only Savior, there's no other Savior but me, and as we're reading throughout the New Testament about Jesus being the Savior, doesn't that teach us that Jesus is Jehovah God, Jesus is Yahweh God, Jesus is Almighty God? Because there can't be two. There's only one. 
And so these are important scriptures. And again, that gives us a little bit of doctrine. But, but really, the emphasis in Isaiah at the end of the day is the application. You don't have to be afraid of whatever it is you will face in life one day. And we will all face things. And you don't have to be afraid to follow God. You know, when the Jews were in, in Babylon and Medo-Persia came and conquered Babylon, Cyrus said, okay, you can go back to Israel. But they were afraid. They were afraid. And what the Lord is saying right here is don't be afraid you know, to follow me. Whatever it is. And you're thinking, okay, Lord, and I've talked to people. They say, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. Just I won't be a missionary to Africa. They say, I just won't do that, Lord. You know, or there's this one thing you're like, okay, Lord, you know, anything but not that. And what if God says, yes, that. Will you still follow him? Will you freak out? Will you kick, scream? Will you be afraid? No, you better not, because you guys have studied this. God is just saying, whatever it is that we're going to face in life, we don't have to be afraid, because he is our God. He's chosen us. He is our Savior, right? He will predict us. He will take care of us, protect us in, in everything. And look at verse 13. It says, Indeed, before the day was, God says, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. Now again, this is written 700 BC. So Medo-Persia conquered Babylon in 539 BC. So over 150 years before it happened, God, before they were even raised up, God says, I'm going to conquer the Babylonians, uh, these guys, and I'm going to force them to flee in those ships that they're so proud of. And so we might go through things, but God says eventually, as you go through it, whatever the extended period of time is, God says, I will give you the victory. Like I said earlier, disciplined but not destroyed. You know, firm and fair spanking, but not forsaken. For us, it's important to have this understanding. God here, before it even happens, way before it even happens, he says, I'm going to take care of those Babylonians and I'm going to make them flee in ships that they're so proud of. And so verse 15, it says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. And so what do you guys think he's referring to right there? What's he talking about right there? He makes a way in the sea. And then can you visualize the chariots coming in, but all these riders, they are just dead in the dust. What's he talking about? He's talking about when they came out of Egypt, huh? And God says, you know, it was interesting when you read the story there in the book of Exodus chapter 14, you know, Moses had brought the people out. And there was mountains on this side, mountains on this side. You got the Red Sea in front of them and the, and the Egyptians, uh, they got their chariots coming right after them, right? And so you look around and you're like, there's no way out of this one. There is no way out. And what did God do? God parted the Red Sea. Think about that. And so then they went through the Red Sea. And as they got to the other side, then, you know, of course, we know the Egyptians were following after them. And God just, God defeated them. You know, it's interesting to me because the plan of the devil, the plan of the uh, Egyptians was to take their little boys and drown them in the river. But what did God do? God ended up drowning them. God, it's amazing to me. And, in, and even in their very plan, to me, it's just so awesome how God, even in their very plan, because Moses was put in the water. Remember, Moses means drawn out. 
Their plan was used by God to put Moses in the water, and then he was raised up, and the, you know, the Egyptians learned how to write, learned how to lead, learned how so much that God would eventually use in order to set his people free. I mean, think about that. How awesome that is. How the very thing the devil tried to do, and the, you know, these things that are so bad, in all reality, what does Romans 8.28 say? God works all things together for good. Genesis 50.20, Joseph said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To say, whatever it is we will face in life, this is what we have to understand. How God will do the, the blessed part of it, and he will make a way. You know, they're, they're looking back and they're, they're thinking, man, that was the glory day, you know? When you look back and Egypt and redemption from that was kind of like um, for us, you know, when we look back in Christian history, what is the sign of signs? What's the sign of signs? The resurrection. That's what Christians look back at and we're like, whoa, man, he conquered the grave, you know? So there's the sign of signs. But when the Jews looked back, it was this. It was the way that God had redeemed them from Egypt, stretching forth his hand, all those plagues, the things that he did in the wilderness, giving them the land. That's an amazing thing. But check this out. Knowing the context, now look at what God says in verse 18. But do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. You know what God says right there? God says, forget about all that. It's nothing compared to what I'm going to do. Now, that is awesome. And a lot of times people will quote Isaiah 43, 18, and they'll say, you know, you look back and all your, your, vig- all your defeats, and, you know, so you don't have to look back and, you know, worry about all the bad stuff because God has a good future for you. And that is true. It is applicable. Um, but he's saying, really, you look back and even at the good things, and he says, but that's, that, that's nothing compared to what I have for you in the future. And to me, I, I always think of Proverbs. It says, the path of the just is like the shining sun. It's brighter and brighter and brighter. You keep following the Lord. You Don't quit. Don't split. You keep following the Lord. You watch what God will do. God says in verse 19, behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to drink to my to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. And so here's what had happened. After 70 years in Babylon, they were doing good. They got their houses. They were making money. They were having a great life. And, and God's like, well, what about my purposes? What about what I want for your life? And so when it was time for them to go back, when it was time for them to, to belong you know, in Jerusalem, they didn't want to go back. They had kind of like you know, gotten comfortable in Babylon. And God says, no, I still have this amazing work for you. Israel, you're going to be great. Israel, you're going to be assigned to the world. Israel, you don't even know the plans that I have for you. And God said, and then they're like, but wait a minute. You know, the, the, the road back to Israel, the road to Jerusalem is a dangerous road. We're talking about a wilderness road. We're talking about, you know, there's places where it's, it's, it's crazy in the, in the wilderness. It's crazy in the desert. And that's where God says, but I will, I will give waters in the wilderness and, and rivers in the desert. And those animals that you thought were all dangerous or what you were afraid of or whatever, even I'm going to give you favor in, in all that. And, and so for us, I guess at the end of the day, it's just we have to be passionate about following the Lord. You know, we want to get comfortable in our life. I'll be honest, I'm old, older now. I'm 55. And one of the things I like is, is like routines. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You're like, man, now I got it all, you know, like my routine. I got my rut and it's kind of cool. And don't kind of rock the boat. Don't shake it up. Don't make it different in any way. 
you know, and, and the Lord says, I don't want to go into the wilderness. I don't want to go into the desert. I don't want to go into the unknown. I want to play it safe. And right here, what, what God is saying is don't be afraid of the wilderness. Don't be afraid of the trials. Don't be afraid of the challenges. Because I will give water. In the difficult times, I will give waters. I will give rivers. You have to follow me. We have to follow God, I believe, with faith and a reckless abandon. You know, some people, I see them stepping up and pouring their life into the ministry because that's what God's called them to do. I mean, it's just amazing to me. And, and that's not comfortable. That's not easy. That's not convenient. You know, even to come in a midweek service or whatever, you know, to, to, to do the different things. You know, there's a million other things the world would say you should do. There's television, there's movies, there's entertainment, there's all that other kind of stuff. And, and, and what I see right here is that we have to have that heart just to follow God, even in the trials, even in the difficulties, even in the wilderness. Because what God says right here is this people, in verse 21, I have formed for myself, and they shall declare my praise. But Israel went through a season where they weren't doing too good. Look at verse 22. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. And that's an interesting. There are some people who maybe they get tired of it. You know what? I've been in ministry now for 30 years. 30 years. been min And it is not just like a little bit of ministry. Like God has had my life. My life. And there are some, they get tired of it. Eventually, come on, where's the me time? You know, and God is saying, well, you guys, you're getting, in, you're getting tired of me, huh? That's what happened to them. Other translations even said that they wouldn't get tired for God. You know, as long as I don't get tired, as long as it's not difficult, as long as it's not challenging, did you know the world is run by tired men? It's not easy being, you know, involved or serving God with a reckless abandon, but they had come to that place. They were weary of God. Look, at, it says in verse 23, you have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you or forced you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. Now, it's interesting here because this is why the book of Leviticus is so important. Any of you guys like the book of Leviticus? You're like, no, no, I always skip that book. It's so important to know what all the sacrifices are. Now, what's the burnt offering? What's the burnt offering signified? You guys know? Everything. I give everything to God. They weren't doing that. They weren't doing the burnt offerings. What does the grain offering symbolize? The grain offering symbolized service. Service unto God. They weren't. They was not. They weren't giving it all. They weren't giving grain offerings, incense. What's that? You guys know that one, right? Prayer. They 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 weren't they weren't praying. So this is where they were at. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. The fat of the sacrifices, the best of the best. And so, um, you guys, any of you guys are old enough. Um, maybe even a little older than me. Do you remember the days when we used to eat the fat? Do you guys remember those days? And then he eventually found out it's not good for you. But anyways, God knew all along it was supposed to belong to him because it's not good for us. But, you know, they understood that. And sometimes people give God the leftovers. They don't give him the fat. They don't give him the firstborn. And this is where they were. You have brought me no sweet came of money, no satisfying me with fat sacrifice, but you have burdened me on the contrary with your sins, you have wearied me with your iniquities. And so, verse 25, God says, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. They didn't deserve it. God did it for his own name. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. And so Israel they obviously would go through a season and it would eventually lead them to the discipline in Babylon for 70 years where they were, they were wearying God with their sins. But did God give up on them? No. 
Does any of you guys ever sin? I'm just curious. You guys, some of you guys have. And the enemy comes in and he condemns you with it. He beats you up with it. And God says, want to know something? Because you're a believer, you want to know something? I, I don't remember that sin. Now, I remember one time I had a debate with a, with a brother, man. I'm like, man, how does it work? Does God really forget your sins? Does he really forget your sins? Like, man, what you did, you know, that, that big old thing, and you got busted and all that stuff, and does he forget it? And he, you know, I, I, again, theologians will go back and forth as far as how that works. More than likely, what it is in reference to is that he will never, ever, ever hold it against you. And I think in, in one sense that he'll never, like, bring it up and throw it in your face that it's done it's behind his back it's thrown into the deepest ocean and then they put up a sign that says no fishing it's done and so when when you realize that like whoa man i've blown it i've sinned i messed up but god doesn't even remember my sins god has forgiven me god has blotted it out i mean there's two reactions some people will say well then i'll do it again I'll do it again because, you know, the God's grace is so amazing. Others who have, have a heart say, if that's the type of God that loves me, I won't do it again. That's the reaction. You know, and what we find right here is Israel, God, you know, he says, you're my kid. Disciplined but not destroyed. Firm and fair, uh, spanking but not forsaken. See, the only way you're ever going to really have that victory in the Christian life, the only way that we're going to have this peace and joy and overcome, and, you know, I know a lot of people, they're like, man, I don't get it. I'm serving God, and I'm not really experiencing the fullness of it. You want to know why? Because one, you don't know who God is. And two, you don't know who you are. Because once you realize who God is and who you are, your life will never be the same. And this is what he's trying to communicate to Israel. Even though they'd blown it, they'd burdened him with their sins. God forgave them, forgot, and God would then give them this new beginning. Verse 27, he says, Your first father sinned, probably speaking of Abraham, I mean, Adam. Some say Abraham, but I'm thinking it's more like Adam. And your mediators have transgressed against me. That's probably in reference to the priests and the prophets. Some of them, especially during the days of Isaiah, other than Isaiah, they were, they were off. And so therefore, he says, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. And that's in reference to what happened when God allowed uh, Jerusalem, the, the Jews, to be carried away to Babylon. And so it's important for us to understand like the history of Israel, you know, to know, you know, what happened with Assyria, what happened with Babylon, their sins, God dealt with them. God would then purge them of their idolatry and bring them back to the land. And today we see that as a sign for all to see there in Israel. And so verse one of chapter 44, he says, yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now, the word Jeshurun, it literally means upright one. And so it's kind of a term of endearment. We find it also in the book of Deuteronomy, just three times in the Bible. And God's uh, little, little term of endearment for them, even though they were so messed up, like some of you, even though they're so messed up, God looks at you and he says, oh, look, there's my Jeshurun. There's my upright one. They're, I love this guy. I love this gal. They're, you know, they're, they're perfect. And that's how he sees us. And the other day I was even praying to the Lord. I don't even know if there's anything to do with the study, but I was praying to the Lord. Lord, help me to see the world through my wife's eyes. I want to see how she sees it. You know, just because as a, as a husband, I think we need to be able to have that, you know. And, and, and then the Lord, after that, he said, that's good, and I will give you that. You got to be ready for it, but you also need to see the world through my eyes. And, and as we do, it's amazing what we find right here, how God 
you know, he says to, to Israel, I formed you, fear not. You know, I will help you. I will help you. It's one thing that God would be, you know, you know able to help, but it's another thing that he'd be willing to help. And that is what he's done for, for Israel. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. And I think that is literal water, but it's also symbolic. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. And one will say, I am the Lord's. And this is speaking of our kids. Remember earlier I was telling you the ones that we're most worried about is our kids. And this guy's saying, hey, I'm the Lord's. And he will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand. This is where we believe that it's okay to get a tattoo if you're a Christian. You can write, write on your hand. I'm just joking. The Lord's name and name himself by the name of Israel. I, I, years ago, when I went through this, and one time I read the Bible in the New Living Translation. Usually I read it in New King James, but one year I read it in the New Living Translation. And I just remember God just got a hold of me. Isaiah 44, 1 through 5. God, I am keeping this for my kids. This is my promise. I'm going to, Lord, for my kids. Because you said right here that you will pour out your spirit on my descendants. And of course, we know Israel is talking about this nation. Of course, we know they're talking about their kids or wondering what's going to happen. But what we find right here is this will happen during the tribulation period, especially. Now, we know there were aspects of it in the early church in Acts chapter 2 and other times where a Jew was born again. But man, it's going to happen big time when uh, Jerusalem, uh, when the Jews receive Jesus. And they're going to spring up. And it says in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order. For me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. You know, God is saying that the children would just unashamedly be baptized by the Holy Spirit. They would follow the Lord. And this Lord that they're following is the God who knows the end from the beginning and who prophesies, who speaks. And there is no one like him. You try to find one and God says, no, there's none like him. And so he says in verse 8, do not Fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from the time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. God says, I know not one. So if God doesn't know of any other rock, <laughs> any other God, then of course we know there is none. And so to me, it, it makes it simple. You know, we're going to see later that God is going to bring up the idols and they can't see and they can't hear and they can't understand and they don't know and they can't help. But you know what that means? Because God is contrasting himself with them. God sees you. God hears you. God knows you. God understands you. And God will help you. And what we're talking about right here, again, and I, I don't want to rip it away from something that I think is so applicable to us, our family, our family. You know, we're worried about, you know, our husband or our wife or our kids or our grandchildren. We're worried about their future. And God is just saying, listen, this is not some abstract church, Christianity, religion thing. This has everything to do with your family. And God says, you don't be afraid. You just keep trusting and following me. And you watch how I'm going to move that mountain. And you watch because you're, you know, you're going to, one day it's going to happen, man, where they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, it's cool knowing our kids have faith and knowing that they're going to go to heaven. I mean, because it doesn't take a lot of faith to go to heaven. This takes a little bit of faith to take us to heaven, but it takes a lot of faith to bring heaven to earth. 
That's what we want, huh? We don't want just our kids getting saved. We want to see them on fire. And this is so much of what, you know, he's talking about right here. You know, God is the rock and, you know, so simple. Verse 9, he talks about the futility of idolatry. He says in verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed and the workmen, they're mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. That the blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals He fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he gets hungry. He's hungry and his strength fails and he he drinks no water. Next thing you know, he faints. And then the, the craftsman, he stretches out his rule and he kind of sketches it. He marks out one with chalk and he fashions it with a plane and he he marks it out with the, the compass and makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house and he cuts down uh, cedars uh, for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He he plants a pine and, and, and the rain nourishes it. What's he talking about here, you guys? You know, huh? He's talking about how they made their idols. They get the cedar tree. They would plant it. it grow. They'd take it, cut it, whatever. You got the blacksmith and he's uh, he's making the God. He's making their gods. The man gets tired. The man, you know, gets thirsty. He's ready to faint. This man is making their gods and they're bowing down to them and they're praying to them. We're going to see how, how, how silly this is, how foolish it is. And he says in verse 15, regarding this tree, then it shall be for a man to burn for he will take some of it and warm himself. You guys know how it is when it gets cold. Thank God for those fires, huh? And, and yes, he kindles it and he bakes his bread. Indeed, he makes a God and, and he worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. And he even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a God. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. And and they will not be delivered because look at what they're worshiping. It's not the, the living God. They do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And when you read the scriptures, what you find is kind of like a Pharaoh who hardened his own heart five times. So then God said, okay, I'll solidify you in your decision. And God would then use him and raise him up as an instrument for his purposes. You know, for us, I guess at the end of the day, um, do you understand? Do you understand that those are just idols? Do you understand that there's only one God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit our triune God. Do you understand that? Do you understand that he sees you, that he knows you? He's invisible. We can't see him now. One day we're going to see Jesus in heaven. I think the Father will still be invisible and the Spirit will, and there'll be probably manifestations and glories, but Jesus will have a body. We're going to see him one day then. We don't see him now. When we bow down and pray now, though, we're praying to the living God and he will help us and he will hear us and he sees us and knows us because we're chosen. We don't have anything to be afraid of. Do you guys see that? Do you see that? I, I, that this is what he's saying right here. Don't, don't shut your eyes. If you have ears, listen. Listen to the truth. Open your hearts in order to understand. But he says in verse 19, and no one considers in his heart regarding these idol makers, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, why well, I burned the half of it in the fire, Yes, I've also baked bread on his coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? You know, a a tree trunk? No way. 
I remember when we went to Cambodia or, or whatever, Singapore, you know, going into the temples and seeing all the idols and seeing all the people worshiping, going to Nepal and they're bowing down before these idols. Even, you know, some of the Catholic statues, you know, I, whether a, a while back we went to uh, this house and this actually a daughter wanted us to pray over this house because the house, we went inside of it, it was crazy. It was like a shrine filled with all these idols. You know, uh, I have, and you guys have Catholic, you know, relatives and they're praying to these idols. And I remember my friend uh, Gus, when he first got saved, the first thing he did is he went to his mom's statue of Mary and he just put a mustache on her with a marker or whatever. He's like, man, she's nothing. As a matter of fact, that's evil. You know, when we pray, you know, to the one God who we can't see with these eyes, but we see with the eyes of our heart, it's then that we're going to be delivered. It's then that we're helped. And they, they don't see the futility of it. Right here we see in verse 20 how, how futile it is. He feeds on ashes. What do we feed on? What do we feed on? You want to know what we feed on? His faithfulness. We feed on his faithfulness because if you have a prayer life, if you have a relationship with God, then you have prayed and you have seen God move. And we feed on his faith. They feed on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. How often we come back to that. They formed their gods. But in all reality, God formed them. What did God make you for? What did God make you for? Why did God make you? To worship him, to enjoy him, to exalt him, to have a relationship with him. See, for us, going back to the Creator, the one who formed us because He loved us, it's an amazing thing. They were forming their gods, but the truth is God formed us. He, he says, I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. And so, again, like I said earlier, what do you do with that grace? What do you do with that grace? Return to me, for I have redeemed you again brought out of egypt brought out of babylon redeemed back from all over the world sing O heavens uh, for the lord has done it shout you lower parts or depths of the earth break forth into singing you mountains O forests and every tree in it for the lord has redeemed jacob and glorified himself in Israel. And I was thinking about that because we're just we're getting ready to finish right now. We're going to finish with a closing song. So I want you guys to do that. Let's sing. Let's worship. And because of what God has done, how he's redeemed us. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. And, and real quick, I will say this, that there were those liars who said Israel's not going to Babylon. They ended up going to Babylon. And then once they got in Babylon, there were those liars who said they're not going to come out of Babylon. But again, they would. So their, their word, mud, God's word is true. It says in verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel or fulfills his predictions of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited and to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. I will raise up her waste places. Again, context Back from Babylon, yes, you will be in Jerusalem. And today even, if I could just say this real quick, remember they became a nation in 1948, but they regained Jerusalem in 1967. All this is fulfilled prophecy. And so it says in verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, and this is interesting, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple, 
your foundation shall be laid. And so real quick in closing right here, Cyrus. King Cyrus uh, was used by God and he is named by Isaiah 150 years before this ever happened, way before he's born. And God says, I'm going to raise up a king. I'm going to give you his name right now. His name is Cyrus. And he's going to be the one to conquer Babylon and then allow the people to come back. And we're going to talk more about him next week, Lord willing, in the next chapter in which we see uh, King Cyrus used by God, named by God. Imagine if you were able to name a person hundreds of years before they even were born. I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Anybody know the Hebrew uh, name or Hebrew word for Cyrus? Does anybody know? Koresh. Koresh. Now, does that ring a bell to anyone? Some of you guys are older. Remember that guy, David Koresh? He thought he was Cyrus. You know, his name, he has a totally different name, but homeboy, you know, thought, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to name myself David Koresh, and I'm Cyrus. You know, and, and this is what we find. No, absolutely not. And the 51 day sage there in Waco, Texas, ended in absolute defeat. No, this is the one that we're reading of. God here tells us things that are so cool. Uh, and I just want to give you some things real quick. Um, we, number one, got to know who God is. Our caring creator, redeemer, and savior. Number two, we have to know who we are. We are loved, formed to worship him, redeemed. We are God's witnesses. And then the last thing is, well, then what are we to do with this? And I just pray that whatever it is that you're going to face in life, whatever the challenges are that you had ahead of you, as you follow God, that you won't be afraid. You won't be afraid. Because when you have that courage to follow God, you're going to have peace. You're going to have power. And you will have pleasure. In other words, you're going to have joy. That's what happens when we become courageous Christians. We have this confidence in the future.